we're the number one energy producer in the world. Soon it will be by far the number one. Uh, it's tremendous wealth. And LNG is being sought after all over Europe and all over the world. And we have more of it than anybody else. And I'm not going to lose that wealth. I'm not going to lose it on, on dreams, on windmills, which, frankly, aren't working too well. And I think I know more about the environment than most people. And is there climate change? Yeah. Will it go back like this? I mean, will it change back? Probably. That's what I think. I believe it goes this way. And I believe, yes, uh, man, meaning us people, men and women, to be politically correct. But because everyone says man, but now we have to add women to that one, too. Man and women, we do have an impact. Uh, but uh, I don't believe the impact is nearly what some say, and other scientists that dispute those findings very strongly. So Obama's talking about all of this with the global warming and that, and a lot of it's a hoax. It's a hoax. I mean, it's a money-making industry, okay? It's a hoax. I can tell you the climate alarmists, if you go back, Go back to the 60s. In the 60s, there were a series of predictions. The world is ending in 10 years. In the 70s, the world is ending in 10 years. In the 80s, the world is ending in 10 years. In the 90s, the world is ending in 10 years. Their predictions keep be being proven wrong and dramatically wrong. Every single year that we're on Earth, you have huge tons of silt deposited by the Mississippi River, by the Amazon River, by the Nile, by every major river system and for that matter, creek, all the way down to the smallest systems. And every time you have that soil or rock, whatever it is that is deposited into the seas, that forces the sea levels to rise because now you've got less space in those oceans uh, because the bottom is, is moving up. Um, well, first of all, the climate's always changing. That's not the fundamental question. The fundamental question is whether man-made activity is, the, is what's contributing most to it. And I, I understand that people say there's a significant scientific consensus on that issue, but I've actually seen reasonable debate on that, per, on that principle. There are a bunch of scientists who feel that this is a problem and that maybe we can do something about CO2 emissions. Uh, George Will, the columnist, uh, wrote recently that back in the 70s, uh, a lot of scientists felt we were moving toward an ice age. So, look, I, I think the, the main thing to understand here is the job of a United States Senator from Kentucky is to fight for coal jobs in our state. I'm just saying that when you say that science is settled and the overwhelming scientific analysis comes to that conclusion, Frank, that is just not correct. Welcome to Nero's Fiddle, episode 49, Racing Toward the Cliff. That was, in order, our former president, Donald Trump, Ted Cruz, Republican senator from Texas, Mo Brooks, Republican representative from Alabama, who, yes, you heard right, was seriously arguing that erosion is causing sea level rise. Marco Rubio, Republican Senator, Florida. 
Mitch McConnell, Republican Senator from Kentucky, currently the Minority Leader, previously the Majority Leader, and James Inhofe, Republican Senator from Oklahoma, who wrote the book, The Greatest Hoax, How the Global Warming Conspiracy Threatens Your Future. Sadly, I can't put that on my list of recommended books, as I haven't read it. But if you want to take a deep dive into the mind of someone who denies the findings of almost all climate scientists and appears to believe that global warming is a hoax, perhaps this is your book. We've come a long way. Again, I want to stress how much of history we've missed along the way. You just can't cover all of the world's history in 52 podcasts. But, given this limitation, I've done my best to follow the arrow of history that's led us to this current moment in world history. If I've whetted your appetite to dive more into history on your own, I won't consider my time wasted. In episode 47, I talked about our disregard for our national debt and discussed where that's going to inevitably lead us. Now, we finally get to the issue of climate change. Global warming refers to the increased temperature of the Earth's atmosphere caused by higher levels of greenhouse gases due to fossil fuel emissions and other emissions of greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Nitrogen and oxygen, the two most common gases in our atmosphere, are basically simple molecules that don't affect global warming significantly. But there are several gases in our atmosphere that do. Carbon dioxide, methane, nitrous oxide, and fluorinated gases are all greenhouse gases with more complex molecules. I'm definitely no scientist, but here's my understanding of how greenhouse gases contribute to global warming. Sunlight enters our atmosphere in short wavelengths that pass through all these molecules and reach the Earth. The Earth absorbs some of the light in these light waves and reflects others. When light strikes a leaf that we see as green, for example, The leaf absorbs all of the visible wavelengths of light except for green. The green wavelengths are reflected off the leaf, which is why we see the leaves as green. When sunlight strikes the earth, then, some of the wavelengths are absorbed by the earth, and some are reflected back toward space. The wavelengths that are reflected back into the atmosphere are longer than those that initially pass through. The shorter wavelength sunlight largely passed through the greenhouse gases on its way to the Earth. But the longer wavelength waves, reflected off the Earth, are trapped by these larger, more complex greenhouse gas molecules. They cause these molecules to vibrate faster and eventually are re-emitted by the molecules to be reabsorbed by other molecules and re-emitted again. All this absorbing and re-emitting high-energy light rays heats the atmosphere. Eventually, some of these light rays will find their way back to space, but some will be re-transferred to the Earth, where they will be partially absorbed as heat and partially re-transferred into the atmosphere to start the process again. As these light waves are retransmitted back into the atmosphere, they may make it back into space this time, or they may be re-reflected back to the Earth. But by that time, many more light rays will have entered the atmosphere in an ongoing process. Water vapor is another greenhouse gas. 
The warmer the atmosphere is, the more water vapor it holds. The more water vapor it holds, the more water vapor absorbs these long wavelength waves reflected from the Earth. The additional water vapor in the atmosphere absorbs more long wavelength waves reflected off the Earth, which in turn warms the atmosphere even more, allowing more water vapor, and we have our first negative feedback loop that will continue to warm the atmosphere regardless of what humans do. According to NOAA, global temperatures have risen 1.4 degrees Celsius to date. That may not sound like a lot, but when you consider the amount of energy that has to go into heating our entire atmosphere to heat it by that amount, it's an immense amount of energy. As we've learned, our weather is a nonlinear or chaotic system, so the atmosphere is not heated evenly. Yet the fact that the atmosphere is now hotter than it was many years ago is not in question. Sixteen of the 17 warmest years globally have happened since 2001. Most importantly, climate scientists have been warning us for many years now that 1.5 degrees of global warming will be a turning point at which the negative feedback loops, which we looked at ever so briefly in our last episode, and we'll dive into in more detail in this episode, will kick in. So let's take a much deeper dive into these climate change negative feedback loops. One of the effects of the uneven heating of our atmosphere is that the poles are warming faster than the lower latitudes. This is because of what's called the albedo effect. Albedo is the term scientists use for the reflection of sunlight from the Earth back into space. When the sun strikes the ice at the poles during the polar summer, the majority of the sun's heat is reflected off the ice and goes back into space. This is because the white ice reflects most of the light that strikes it. When the sun strikes the ocean, however, most of the heat is absorbed by the darker ocean. With global warming, however, the Arctic ice cap has been melting. To date, one estimate is that 95% of the oldest and thickest ice in the Arctic has already melted. A quick Google search can find a video showing the melting of the Arctic ice cap from 1979 until today. The amount of ice lost is stunning, yet the fact that so much of the thickest ice has already melted tells us how quickly the remaining ice cap will likely melt. All of the research I have seen on this says the ice cap in the North Pole will likely be ice-free within 30 years, with current levels of greenhouse gas emissions. As the ice in the polar cap melts, more of the dark ocean is exposed to the 24-hour summer sun, meaning that vast areas of the Arctic Ocean will be absorbing the sun's rays and will be heating rather than reflecting the sun back into space. These heated Arctic oceans will then continue to warm the polar ice cap, which then will melt even faster, which leaves more ocean free from ice, which absorbs more summer sunlight, which heats the Arctic Ocean even further, which melts more ice, and so on in a vicious cycle. This is the next negative feedback loop that will go on warming the atmosphere even after humans reduce our CO2 emissions to sustainable levels. 
The Guardian has reported that scientists have noticed a precipitous fall since 2014 in the ice shelves off Antarctica as well. As with the Arctic, much of the Antarctic is being heated faster than the rest of the globe. Scientists report the Antarctic Peninsula has warmed by 4.5 degrees Fahrenheit. Then there is the Greenland ice sheet, which is the world's second largest ice sheet after the Antarctic ice sheet. It's about a mile thick, on average, and covers over 700,000 square miles. It's now clear that the Greenland ice sheet is melting at an alarming rate, over seven times faster than it was melting in the 1990s. On average, a total of 315 gigatons of ice melts from the sheet every year. But extreme melting events are becoming more common. In 2012 and again in 2019, the amount of ice lost was closer to 500 gigatons. More than just melting, Greenland's glaciers are moving into the ocean far faster than ever before. University of Washington researchers have recently found that Greenland's largest glacier, the Jakobshavn Glacier, is moving towards the sea at more than four times the speed that it was retreating into the ocean in the 1990s. This is a phenomenon that's happening all over the world. What happens is that the ice melts on top of the glaciers and runs down crevices and pools below the glaciers. This liquid water beneath the glaciers acts as a lubricant, making the glacier slide several times faster than its normal glacial pace. This is all of great concern because the Greenland ice sheet contains over 12% of the world's glacier ice, which would raise the world's ocean levels by 20 feet if it were all to melt. Yet this is far from the only glacier in the world. Glaciers around the world are melting at an alarming rate. In 1966, Glacier National Park in Montana had 35 active glaciers. Today, it has 26. Overall, the park's glaciers have shrunk by about 40%. Worldwide, glaciers lose about 335 gigatons of ice every year. This is more than is held by all glaciers in the European Alps. From 1961 to 2016, the world has lost more than 10.6 trillion tons of ice and snow, enough to cover the entire continental U.S. in four feet of ice. This loss of glacier ice is hugely troubling, especially for people who depend on glacial runoff water for their rivers, for their drinking water, and water to irrigate their crops. Rivers in Asia have been studied for the effects they're likely to have once their glaciers melt. It's clear that massive glaciers in the Himalayas are melting, and within a few decades could melt altogether. Some of these feed rivers, such as those that feed the Indus and the Brahmaputra basins, which could drastically affect the ability of up to 41 million people to grow and harvest their own food in Tibet, China, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. This leads to a question that has never been adequately addressed. What will the world do when tens and even scores of millions of people are no longer able to grow food 
and make a living on land that has been productive agricultural land since the Neolithic. Without significant advanced planning, a world that's struggling with its own droughts and other ravages of global warming certainly will not be poised to absorb them. As glaciers melt all over the world, so is the Arctic permafrost. The permafrost is a frozen layer of Earth that has remained frozen since at least the last ice age. In North America alone, this covers almost a quarter of the exposed landmass, about 9 million square miles. Like the world's glaciers, the permafrost is already starting to thaw. By the end of the century, it's estimated that a full 40%, some 2.5 million square miles, of the world's permafrost could thaw. Don't forget that the Arctic is warming twice as fast as the rest of the world. This has devastated Arctic ecosystems, causing landslides, slump holes, changes in stream flows, lakes draining, and seashores collapsing. This has had devastating effects on local wildlife in places and is making it more difficult for indigenous peoples to find food. The greatest danger of permafrost thawing is yet another vicious feedback loop we've discussed. The permafrost is full of plant material and organic matter that contain an estimated, incredible, 1,400 gigatons of carbon frozen below the surface. When this thaws, it decays, releasing massive amounts of methane and other greenhouse gases. It's estimated that this could release up to 500 gigatons of carbon into the atmosphere in coming years. Of particular concern is the permafrost release of methane into the atmosphere. This is because methane is an incredibly dangerous greenhouse gas. Estimates vary, but scientists seem to agree that it's at least 28 times more effective at trapping infrared radiation than carbon dioxide. Hence the negative feedback loop. Global warming causes thawing of the permafrost, which causes release of massive amounts of CO2 and incredibly dangerous methane gases, which causes more global warming, which causes more thawing of permafrost and release of more greenhouse gases, which causes more global warming, etc. If these were the only dangers, and the only negative feedback loops that we face with climate change, it would be more than dangerous enough for us. But sadly, there's more. When humans and other animals breathe, we obviously take in oxygen and breathe out carbon dioxide. Plants, of course, transform the carbon dioxide to oxygen during photosynthesis. It's been this way since the days of the dinosaurs and before. After endless millennia of plants and animals doing their thing, the Earth's atmosphere has developed an equilibrium of oxygen and carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, or at least it did prior to the Industrial Revolution. Our dumping of massive amounts of CO2 and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere in recent years has upset this balance. Yet the dumping of carbon we burn from fossil fuels into the atmosphere is not the only way we contribute to global warming. The Union of Concerned Scientists has estimated that 10% of global warming can be traced to deforestation. Deforestation occurs when forests are burned or chopped down, often for agricultural purposes. 
the majority of deforestation in our tropical rainforests has been traced to the desire for more land to produce four commodities, beef, soybeans, palm oil, and wood products. Trees, of course, store carbon. An acre of trees can store an estimated 5,880 pounds of carbon dioxide and give off 4,280 pounds of oxygen in a year. Deforestation causes a double blow to global warming. Not only is the carbon that has been sequestered in the trees released into the atmosphere, sometimes more, sometimes less, depending on how the forest is deforested, and there's the loss of the trees that previously had been converting carbon dioxide into oxygen and storing carbon in the form of wood. Of course, people purposely burning or chopping down a forest isn't the only cause of deforestation. Every year, wildfires burn approximately 865 million acres globally. Many of these wildfires are, of course, forest fires. The cost of these forest fires is not simply the loss of trees, but all of the carbon they release into the atmosphere as they burn. Some studies predict a 50 to 100% rise in the area burned by wildfires by 2050. The cost of all this additional carbon is not figured into the government's evaluation of greenhouse emissions, according to thecostofcarbon.org. There's an even greater concern than human wildfire-caused deforestation, climate-caused deforestation that will happen in the Amazon rainforest if global warming is not reversed. The weather pattern, known as El Nino, is caused by a reversal of trade winds over the Pacific Ocean. Typically, the trade winds blow westward from South America to Asia. This blows warm tropical surface waters to the Asian side of the Pacific. During an El Nino event, the trade winds reverse, blowing warm surface waters eastward toward South America. This changes weather patterns. People who live in the southwest U.S are familiar with this, as it brings heavier rains to that area of the U.S. What we may be unfamiliar with, however, is that it diverts rain from much of the Amazon basin. The World Wildlife Foundation estimates that between 30 and 60 percent of the Amazon could become arid savanna. This seems to be happening at a frightening rate. Historically, El Niños have occurred every two to seven years. Since 2002, however, El Nino events have been observed in 2002 to 3, 2004 to 5, 2006 to 7, 2009 to 10, 2014 and this is an alarming change in the weather pattern that could cause massive deforestation in the Amazon rainforest much more quickly than was previously predicted. This is of immense concern because of the role the Amazon plays in removing carbon from our atmosphere and converting it to oxygen. The Amazon has been described as the lungs of our planet because more than 20% of our world's oxygen is produced there. This is an immense amount of carbon that the Amazon takes out of our atmosphere. There's one more way that we are in danger of losing this crucial rainforest. The Amazon is so incredibly big and fertile 
that it plays a major part in creating its own weather. It's called a rainforest for a reason. The Amazon averages seven and a half feet of rainfall a year. In the northwest part of the Amazon, the part most likely to be affected by El Niños, it can average almost 20 feet a year. This causes an enormous amount of evaporation from leaves and transpiration, which is the exhalation of water vapor through leaves. This creates the humid conditions necessary for the lush rainfall in the Amazon. When the Amazon is deforested, there is no longer this evaporation, and the weather patterns change, leading to decreased rain. Since the trees in the Amazon are adapted to heavy rainfall, they can't survive with significantly lower amounts of rainfall. This leads to another incredibly disturbing feedback loop. The more the Amazon is deforested, the less it creates conditions for its own weather and the less rainfall it receives. This will lead to even more deforestation, which will increase the carbon content of the atmosphere even more, which will create the conditions for El Niños even more, which will lead to even more deforestation. And on we go in a negative feedback loop that will continue to degrade the most important rainforest on our planet. One would think, with facts like these, countries would be doing everything they can to protect rainforests. But not only has Brazil's leader, Jair Bolsonaro, promised to open the rainforest to industry and agriculture, which he has, but he has drastically scaled back funds and staffing for the enforcement of environmental laws leading to deforestation of the rainforest at an alarming rate. It's important to note that we're talking about the Amazon rainforest. And that's appropriate because it's such an incredibly important rainforest. But there are many other rainforests in the world, and similar changes are happening worldwide. Rainforests used to cover 14% of the Earth's land surface. They now cover only 6%. Yet we continue to cut them down at an alarming rate for such things as palm oil, for which there are numerous satisfactory alternatives that don't require us to demolish our rainforests. Another disturbing and inevitable effect of global warming will be sea level rise. NOAA reports that the global sea level has been rising. In 2014, it was 2.6 inches higher than the 1993 average. Flooding is now 900% more frequent than it was just 50 years ago. In the U.S., 40% of the population lives in coastal areas, and will be increasingly vulnerable to flooding, shoreline erosion, and hazardous storms. Worldwide, about half the population lives within 125 miles of the ocean. Sea level rise is happening faster than was anticipated. It's estimated that 300 million people could lose their homes due to sea level rise in the next three decades. This includes 200 million whose current homes will be permanently underwater. Then, there are the rise of megastorms. The largest storms are Category 5 hurricanes, known as hurricanes when they happen in the Atlantic, typhoons when they occur in the North Pacific, and cyclones when they occur in the Indian Ocean or South Pacific. These are hurricanes that have wind speeds of over 156 miles an hour. By one reckoning I saw, there were no Category 5 storms in the 1940s, three in the 1950s, four in the 1960s, 
four in the 1970s, three in the 1980s, seven in the 1990s, 13 in the 2000s, and 11 in the teens. Now there's talk about creating a Category 6 hurricane that never existed before because it was never needed. Storms like hurricanes like Katrina, Sandy, Wilma, and Typhoon Haiyan that cause many billions of dollars worth of damage and create great loss of life are becoming far too common. Until recently, cyclones that hit South America were rare. From 1900 to 1970, there were only seven. Since 1970, there have been 29. Climatologists expect that this increase in destructive storms will only continue to increase as global warming continues. This is because these storms are fed by the warming ocean currents that continue to get ever warmer due to climate change. Sadly, there's not enough time to talk about all that needs to be discussed, like the fact that ocean currents are changing. Scientists estimate that the North Atlantic current has slowed by 15%. Should this continue and even accelerate, we can pretty much throw out everything I've said so far and anticipate even worse weather patterns. Global warming is also acidifying our oceans. Ocean acidity has already increased by 30%. If this trend continues, it could cause mass extinctions of shellfish as their shells cannot exist in the ocean once acidity gets too high. This doesn't even cover coral bleaching and several other devastating aspects of climate change. Even more disconcerting is that scientists have been predicting the course that climate change will take for a couple decades now. What I've noticed, though, in following this for the past several years, is that climate change has proceeded faster than almost every model scientists have come up with so far. What we know about the climate now is that it's a chaotic system, and chaotic systems are impossible to predict with any certainty for more than a short time into the future. This is why weather predictions are unreliable for more than about a week out. When we talk about global climate, we are talking about all these chaotic systems I've listed above and more. Thawing Arctic permafrost, warming ocean currents, rising sea levels, deforestation, and other things across the entire world will have to be taken into account. It's really an impossible job to predict accurately. The best scientists can do is estimate. And, frighteningly, they seem to be predicting on the low side. A likely cause of their underestimates is all of the feedback loops discussed above. What we do know is that these feedback loops are real and they're happening now. They will continue to increase as climate change increases. These feedback loops pose the greatest danger. Each one of them will continue to accelerate climate change, and the faster we warm the planet, the faster the feedback loops will accelerate the warming. So how fast are we warming the planet? What we know is that the more carbon and other greenhouse gases we put in the atmosphere, the faster global warming will occur. What is generally not known is how much carbon we are currently discharging into the atmosphere. We've heard so much about all the carbon that's been released into our atmosphere since the Industrial Revolution. 
it can give the impression that we've been burning carbon at a more or less consistent rate. Sure, we must have burned a little bit more carbon in recent years, but whatever. The reality is that carbon dioxide emissions have increased at an exponential rate beginning in the 1950s and have continued increasing at that rate until today. Fully half of the carbon that's been released into our atmosphere by humans has been released since the first Seinfeld episode was released. This is concerning enough, but the real problem is that we continue to increase our CO2 emissions. There's been a small dip since the beginning of COVID, but time will tell where this goes when the economy is fully open again. We've doubled the rate of the world's CO2 emissions since 1975. That statement bears repeating. Even though we know, beyond a shadow of a doubt, the continued dumping of carbon into our atmosphere will lead us to a massive environmental collapse, we have chosen as a species since 1975 not to decrease, but on the whole, to increase our use of the very greenhouse gases that we know will lead us to this collapse at very alarming rates. The most frightening part of global climate change, though, is there's a point at which the feedback loops listed above will work together and create a self-perpetuating vicious cycle in which climate change can't be stopped, no matter what humans do. I was speaking with an environmental scientist who studies this and asked him where that point is. His answer was simple. We don't know. So now, with all this background, let's begin to examine the question. How and why are we here at this moment in history? Here we are at the first quarter of the 21st century, and we see our government is spending money at ever-increasing rates. We're spending more money now than we did in 2000 by about three and a half times. The whole time, we hear the same refrain from the neoconservative elite. Cut taxes. Cut taxes. Of course, the vast bulk of all their taxes since the time of Reagan have gone to the very rich. So the neocons package the next tax cut for the rich as supply-side, trickle-down, or cuts for job creators. And a properly primed neoconservative electorate dutifully supports the next tax cut that will inevitably reduce their middle-class share of the economy even further and push us one step closer to economic collapse. The effects of climate change are painfully obvious in terms of warming ocean currents, bleaching coral reefs, melting polar ice caps, and megastorms that are pushing to ever higher and lower latitudes and many other phenomena but they don't affect our daily lives too significantly yet. So our neoconservative leaders lead us in chants of drill baby drill, and our neocon electorate dutifully elects leaders who promise to increase our coal production and pull us out of the Paris Climate Accords. 
even though the prodigal generation knows for sure that this will cause our children, the axial generations, and their children to live lives of austerity and deal with the climate change collapse that will inevitably result, my generation is happy to do this now as it gives us a marginally better standard of living, even if it's at our children's expense. In 1975, Marshall Applewhite, a charismatic leader whose writings suggest that he considered himself as Christ's representative on earth, began recruiting adherents to his sect, which would become known as Heaven's Gate. He would gather a loyal group of his followers to his communal movement that seemed to include beliefs that were a mixture of Christianity and extraterrestrials with a large dose of Star Trek culture thrown in. Applewhite would carefully groom his followers over the next 20 years. In March of 1997, then, he persuaded the members of his cult that there was a spaceship that was following the Hale-Bopp comet, which was then prominent in the news. He convinced his followers that if they would all commit suicide, their souls would board the craft and would be taken to a level of existence above the human. That March, 30 Heaven's Gate members committed suicide in three groups over three successive days. It sounds crazy to us, yet it shows that we humans, if carefully groomed over decades, can be convinced of even the craziest beliefs by charismatic leaders, even at the cost of our lives. Future generations will look back at the prodigal generation and wonder how it could be possible that huge percentages of an entire generation could believe that virtually every scientist in the world who's been warning of the dangers of climate change that we've just discussed is wrong. Should we go over the climate cliff and the fiscal cliff that I've warned about, they'll also wonder how when it was so perfectly obvious that America was headed for economic Armageddon, an entire generation could ignore the warning signs and keep incurring trillion-dollar-plus annual deficits. I lived about five miles from the house in which the Heaven's Gate members committed suicide in 1997. It was obviously big news, and it was a big topic of discussion in North San Diego County at the time. Attitudes towards those who committed suicide, not the leaders, but the rank-and-file followers, seemed to be a combination of pity that they had been duped by a narcissistic charlatan who had sacrificed his followers to prove how much they loved him, and contempt that they would be so credulous that they would believe something so crazy and so detrimental to themselves. Heaven's Gate showed that it's possible to convince limited numbers of people to believe in almost anything, even at the cost of their very lives. As I've mentioned before, our beliefs have more to do with our wanting to fit in with our in-group than they do a rational examination of the facts. And so it is with the prodigal generation. As I've mentioned before, phenomena that occur on micro-scales can also be seen on macro scales in history. We've shown that not just limited but massive numbers of people can hold beliefs 
that have no basis in law, science, or fact, and are simply detrimental to us. They are not simply detrimental to us, but will be devastating to uncounted generations to follow. Okay, you say, but that's just the neocons among us. True enough, perhaps, with regard to climate change denialism, but not so with regard to national debt default denialism, in which virtually all Americans, with the exception of a very few, continue to deny that our current rate of annual deficits will, within about a decade or so, cause us to default on our national debt, or at the very least, will suffer a downgrading of our credit rating, which will cause the cascading of events I mentioned in episode 47, ending in a great worldwide recession, if not depression. At the risk of repeating myself here, history doesn't provide any instance I know of of sacrificing our current economic interest in order to improve the lot of a future generation while a country is in the middle of an economic depression. It's a very safe bet that should we default in whole or in part on our national debt or suffer a credit downgrading, that our fight to halt climate change will be very severely disrupted. How did we get to this point? I suspect the same way the Heaven's Gate cult did. I don't know much of what happened during the 20 years that Marshall Applewhite was grooming his followers, but I've watched in real time as our current generation of neoconservatives were groomed by Rush Limbaugh, Fox News, and recently other even more extreme right-wing websites and news sources. Would the average Republican in 1980 have denied the near-unanimous verdict of virtually every scientist, it would have been extremely unlikely. This kind of denial of reality takes a good couple decades of grooming. Fox, Limbaugh, and others have groomed this cohort of prodigals, fueled by a fire hose of funding from Exxon, the Koch Foundation, and so many other fossil fuel sources funding climate change denialism. With sources like Fox, dressed up as trustworthy news sources, providing independent, conservative news, but funded by the purveyors of climate change denialism, longtime conservative Americans were groomed to accept neoconservative doctrine, including climate change denialism. It's worth noting that creating a worldview from scratch is very difficult. Philosophers do it. Some great thinkers do. But the average person on the street does not put that kind of brain power into rethinking society and their place in it. It's always been that way. That's why there's always been a well-accepted social order. Christianity, Confucianism, the Enlightenment, and so on have always provided a social order to live together in a well-functioning, productive society. When the prodigals tore down their parents' social order, they set themselves up for whoever might come along promoting their worldview, be it good or bad. Fox, Limbaugh, and company won. Erstwhile conservatives have adopted the neoconservative worldview, including the Exxon, Coke, climate change is a hoax philosophy. But remember, the average person on the street doesn't come up with their own worldview. They haven't each unilaterally decided 
that man-made climate change is a hoax. This is a philosophy that's been fed to them. These people have followed trusted sources. Are they Nero, fiddling while the world burns? No. They're Nero's fiddle, played by Exxon, the Koch brothers, etc., who've played them for their purposes. Should they be pitied, held in contempt? That all misses the point. We're at a tipping point in the history of our species. We need to reach out to them. We have to turn this around at all costs. They are not our enemy. They are potential allies in the battle to save our climate. On the other hand, with financial default is different in that it affects almost all current voters. I wouldn't say we're being played by powerful fossil fuel or other interests. Rather, we just slowly got used to larger and larger deficits step by step. Would the average voter in the early 1980s, when Reagan was taking his first steps at sustained federal deficit spending, have said that annual trillion-dollar spending deficits were okay, especially if we're only about a decade away from the kind of debt-to-GDP ratio that will require a downgrading of our national credit rating? The answer to this is certainly not. What a difference 40 years can make. In this respect, we're not like Nero's fiddle, more like the metaphorical frog in the kettle. We just got used, degree by degree, to our ever-larger deficit spending and have closed our eyes to the consequences. And so here we are. We're racing directly not only to the fiscal cliff, but to the cliff of a runaway greenhouse effect and saying, step on it, Thelma. I understand that everyone might not have read every book that I've recommended, but this stuff is incredibly important. I wasn't always a climate change warrior. I never doubted our scientists, but would say, climate change, that's too bad. Then go on with my life as usual. Then I read the book, Six Degrees, Our Future on a Hotter Planet, by Mark Linus. If you can, please read this book. But this stuff is far too important. If you don't have the time to read the book, please find the time this week to watch National Geographic's Six Degrees Could Change the World. You can find it online. It'll only take about an hour and a half out of your week. Thank you. See you next week.